0: This is Our American Stories, a special D-Day version. We're going to lead things off with the voice of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, delivering the order of the day, preparing American fighting men for this day back in 1944, marking the start of the campaign to retake Europe, beginning with the beaches of Normandy. The planning, by the way, for this day, starting back in 1943. Let's bring you back.
1: the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940, 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking.
0: In all, some 156,000 Allied troops amassed to take on the 50,000 Nazis holed up in defensive positions. The Allies weren't just meeting 50,000 equals on open ground, though. They were attacking into 170 coastal artillery guns, rocket launchers, and countless bunkers. The Allies used massive naval and air bombardment to try to soften up the beaches and sent in airborne troops to try to prevent the Germans from counterattacking once the landings began. The target was a 50-mile-long stretch of the Normandy coast divided into five sectors— and five-sector codes named Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. The enormity of the effort was obvious from the moment the idea hatched, but for many Americans today, the story really came alive thanks to Stephen Ambrose. Author of must-read books including Band of Brothers and D-Day, Ambrose collected thousands of first-hand stories from World War II and captured the popular imagination. He remembers exactly where he was on D-Day
2: in Whitewater, Wisconsin. My father was in the Pacific. I was 10 years old and I was doing what I could for the war effort. I had a victory garden. I collected tin cans. We used to save the tin foil from the chewing gum, get great big balls of it, and we would turn it in. I'm I'm not sure that it was anything more than a morale booster for the kids. I, I guess they made use of it, but we felt very much a part of the war effort.
0: But even though Ambrose has vivid memories of that period and grew up to be an accomplished historian, he got into World War II and D-Day history almost by accident.
2: I was a Civil War historian, and in 1964, I got a telephone call from General Eisenhower, who asked if I would be interested in writing his biography. He had read a couple of my Civil War books. Yes, sir, said I. And it got started there. I mean, you can't do Eisenhower's biography and not be interested in D-Day. We talked for a whole afternoon about what access I would have, what papers would be available to me, what would be involved in doing this work. At the end of that conversation, he said, I notice you're teaching in New Orleans. Did you ever know Andrew Higgins? No, sir, I said. He, I know who he was, but he died in 59, and I didn't move to New Orleans until 1960. Well, that's too bad, Eisenhower said. He's the man who won the war for us well my god just dropped a statement like that from a source like that and that's what he said, he said if Andy Higgins hadn't designed and built these landing craft we never could have gone in over an open beach I don't know how we ever would have gotten back into Europe he said that got me very interested in Mr. Higgins and we've followed that up at the Eisenhower Center, I've had graduate students do various studies of the Higgins boatyard, and one of them, Jerry Strahan has just this spring published a biography of Andrew Higgins
0: And this is back in 1994, thanks to a Brian Lamb interview with Stephen Ambrose. What did Ambrose and his team learn about Higgins?
2: He had been building flat-bottom boats for the exploration of the oil companies in the swamps of Louisiana in the late 1930s. So he was into flat-bottom boats already. The Marines came to him in 1939 and said, we're going to get into the war and we're going to need landing craft. And you're doing the best flat-bottom boats around will you enter a competition and he did the navy bureau of ships didn't like his boat but the marines loved it and they insisted on it it was a thirty two foot boat carried a platoon of men, thirty men and two officers flat bottom with a steel ramp made out of plywood very cheap construction, very simple design, a floating cigar box is what it is but it was a boat that could handle heavy seas could go through a surf, could go into a beach, drop that ramp, and you've got 30 men charging out of that boat, going right on into the enemy position. Then, and this was the key to the thing, he developed a system, he had a protected propeller on it, so that he could go right on into the sand and bottom out on it, drop an anchor astern as he went in, then he put a little Briggs and Stratton motor on the back of that boat. And he could wink himself off with that Briggs and Stratton, pull that boat back off the sand, and then here was the key to it all: turn in the surf and get headed back out again without broaching when it was broadside to the surf. Go out to the mothership and pick up another load. Higgins had 80 employees in 1939. The Marines went for this boat. The Army loved the boat. Orders were placed. Higgins expanded from a little, almost a monpa kind of a factory. Into an assembly plant. He had four different ones in New Orleans, some of them under canvas. 30,000 employees. And he turned out 20,000 of these landing craft in the course of the war. He was just a genius at design and a genius at production. He was a lousy businessman. And he went bust after the war. But he's the man who won the war for us.
0: And when we come back, more D Day stories, more Stephen Ambrose, and so much more. The D Day story here. On Our American Stories for the Hour. This is Our American Stories, our special. D-Day version And we left off With Stephen Ambrose talking about Andrew Higgins And my goodness, from 80 employees to 30,000 And ultimately he files For bankruptcy, and a lot of people said He wasn't a good businessman But I think there was a higher calling For Higgins, and so many people By the way, who manufactured Weapons for the war The arsenal of democracy, as it's known And this is where our business talents Our spirit, and our Capitalistic system all converge To take down the Nazi menace And all of Europe couldn't Let's not forget where we were when this happened England was left alone The Nazis had taken the entire continent, folks So let's go back to Stephen Ambrose Who was so impressed by Higgins And Eisenhower's assessment of Higgins That it influenced plans to build a museum Starting in the 1990s
2: we're building a museum in New Orleans, the National D-Day Museum, on the site where Higgins built some of these boats and tested them. It's bigger than just honoring Higgins industry, it's going to honor all of American industry because you've got similar figures. We had no landing craft at all. None in 1940. We had 30,000 in 1944. We virtually didn't have an Air Force in 1940. By 1944 we were building 8,000 planes a month. Some of these were big four-engine bombers. So we want to honor American industry for what it did to make D-Day possible. And Higgins is the, the man we center our attention on. But there was Henry Kaiser and there was Henry Ford and General Motors and everybody picked in. And then the men of D-Day, of course, and what they did. So we're building this museum in New Orleans. It'll be the only museum in the United States that is devoted exclusively to World War II. And the only museum in the world that has as its central theme one day in the world's history. But
0: what a day. What a day indeed. And by the way, that museum is now the National World War II Museum. And it's even more. Indeed, I think it's one of the most spectacular museums in the country. Their Road to Tokyo exhibit and their Road to Berlin exhibit, two of the finest you've ever seen in your lives. Get down to New Orleans, go to the museum, and spend two or three days. It's that good. It's that big. I'm telling you, it's like nothing you've ever seen. And now Stephen Ambrose through all that time, collected thousands of stories, but a few especially stuck out, like one about the guys who actually rode into war on those floating cigar boxes.
2: Those Higgins boats may have won the war for us, but every man who went in on one hated them. They were flat bottomed, they did this in the waves, the gunnels were only six feet high, waves were washing over, everybody was seasick. Everybody. The decks were just a wash and vomit. There was no place to sit down on these boats. They were like sardines packed into it. Everybody was sick. One guy told me this story. He said, I'm from Omaha. I've never been on salt water before. Everybody around me was getting sick, and I was holding on. I was proud of myself. The guy next to me took his helmet off and up chucked into the helmet, and I held on even when that happened. I wonder why the hell is he bothering to do that? Since the deck is already a wash and vomit. He rigged into his helmet and he pulled out his false teeth and popped them back in his mouth, and I lost it all when that happened.
0: And this amazing story about Ken Russell, a kid from Tennessee.
2: He was 18 years old, and as he was, he was in the Airborne, and as he was flying across the channel, he was struck by the thought, my high school class is graduating tonight. He came down in St. Mary where there was a fire on the edge of town in a hay bond set by a tracer bullet and he watched as the guy next to him got hit in his gammon grenade coming down in his parachute and that set off, they all were carrying landmines underneath their reserve chutes and that gammon grenade set off that landmine and just suddenly the guy wasn't there it was just an empty parachute he looked to his right and his buddy over to his right was being sucked into the fire, the fire was drawing oxygen and drawing parachutists into it he screamed once Ken says and he screamed once more and then he disappeared into the fire and he didn't scream anymore Ken came down on the steeple of the Kirk at St. Mary Glees. now this is famous from Cornelius Ryan's book and Daryl Zanuck's movie but actually it was more than one guy, it wasn't just John Steele who was caught on that roof, Ken Russell also was he's hanging there trying to get to his trench knife so he can cut himself loose with his ri- from his risers when a German sergeant came around the corner Ken says, I'll never forget him, blue-eyed and red-haired. And this German sergeant pulled up his Schmeiser, his machine pistol, to shoot Russell and Steele hanging there on the steeple. And Sergeant John Ray from home of Louisiana came down right behind that German. The German turned and cut him, as I gather from Ken's story, almost literally just cut him in half with a burst in that Schmeiser, turned back to shoot Russell and Steele. And Sergeant Ray, in his dying gas, with his guts spilling out, got that forty-five out and shot that German in the back of the head. Then Ken cut himself loose from his risers. In the process, he cut off one of his fingers and didn't know it for the next three hours. He ran, he said, I was the loneliest man in the world. He ran through the village, got to the edge, and there was a German flak wagon, 20-millimeter gun shooting up at the Dakotas, the C-47s, bringing in the American airborne. Ken says, I I did what I was trained to do. I pulled the pin of my grenade and tossed it up there on that platform and they weren't shooting anymore. Then he saw a German runner on a bicycle, obviously carrying a message, and he pulls up his M1 and shoots him. Now, all this happens before 5 a.m. from an 18-year-old kid. Geez, with soldiers like that, it's no wonder we won the war.
0: So it was the business, it was the soldiers, it was the spirit. And then Ambrose reminds us all why all of these stories matter, and why they should matter. What were these men fighting for on D-Day?
2: You know, you can't exaggerate it. You can't overstate it. It was the pivot point of the 20th century. It was the day on which the decision was made as to who's gonna rule in this world in the second half of the 20th century. Is it gonna be Nazism? Is it gonna be Communism? Or are the democracies gonna prevail? If we had to fail on Omaha Beach, and on the other beaches on the 6th of June of 1944. The struggle for Europe would have been a struggle between Hitler and Stalin and we would have been out of it. If Stalin had won, the Iron Curtain would have been on the English Channel. If Hitler had won, I don't think he would have been able to take Britain, at least not in the immediate future, but he would have gone all the way to the Urals. And Hitler's plan was to turn the problem of conquering America over to the next generation utilizing the resources that he intended to have as a part of the Greater German Reich as a result of victory and it really did turn on getting ashore and penetrating that Atlantic wall. Now once that Atlantic wall was penetrated and we had a beachhead and you could begin to move from England into the continent. This tremendous uppouring of America's factories that we had managed to get over to England by winning the Battle of the Atlantic in 1943 If you penetrated the Atlantic Wall, then it was only a question of, it was no longer a question of who's going to win, it was when is the end going to come. Germany couldn't, could not possibly prevail against. But if Rommel stopped him cold on the beaches, this was an all-or-nothing operation. Eisenhower, when he took command in January of 44, said this operation is being planned as a success. There are no contingency plans had they stopped him and they came very close to stopping him, we would not have been able to mount another operation in 1944 this was hitler's great chance to win the war stop him in june of 44 on the atlantic coast then he can move eleven panzer divisions to the east eleven panzer divisions might well have swung the balance on the eastern front or they might have had another effect it might have led stalin to conclude those blankety-blank capitalists, they're after their old tricks. They're going to fight to the last Red Army soldier. To hell with that. I'm going to cut a deal with my friend Adolf again. Just like we did in 1939. We'll divide Eastern Europe between us. That wouldn't have lasted. Sooner or later, they would have clashed. But the democracies wouldn't have been in on it anymore.
0: And by the way, on this big day, 5,000 ships and landing craft were included and involved. 50,000 vehicles 11,000 planes. The United States suffered 6,600 casualties, 1,465 killed. The United Kingdom, 2,700. Canada, 1,359 killed. And Germany, well, they lost between four and 9,000. By June 11, with the beachheads firmly secured, more than 326,000 Allied troops had crossed with more than 100,000 tons of military equipment. This all-or-nothing gamble had been a success, but at an incredibly high cost. And could we ever do something like this again, if called on? Well, that's a big question. But when we come back, more on D-Day. The stories of D-Day. We're going to hear the President's Prayer on D-Day. Ronald Reagan at Pointe de Hoc, and so much more. This is our American stories, D-Day stories, after these messages. This is our American Stories, our special D Day celebration. All these days and histories, of course, brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu to check out all of their terrific and free online courses. We've already heard from General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who delivered the order of the day back on June 6, 1944. And what a day it was. And we heard from Stephen Ambrose who called this the pivot point of the 20th century. And indeed, perhaps world history, one of the big pivot points and days in world history. And now we want to bring you a talk that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had with the American people. This was not TV days, folks. People gathered around their radios. The country was ready for war. They knew it was afoot. Roosevelt had declared war. Obviously, years before, but war in Europe was close. And on this particular day, these are the words that Roosevelt chose for his countrymen.
3: In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore-tried by night and by day, without rest, until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace, They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them. Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day and again when each day is spent let words of prayer be on our lips invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength to strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled, Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed, and racial arrogances lead us to the saving of our country, and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen.
0: And what a piece of writing by Roosevelt. And just a couple of lines really stand out, though so much of this is so beautifully crafted and delivered. He says, O Lord, give us faith, Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. You can't imagine a president talking like that again, ever. And he says this too, with thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. And indeed they were. And luckily he called AA and he wasn't saying there weren't good German people or comparing the countries. And by the way, got Americans prepared for a very long, hard war. He wasn't fo- telling folks to go shopping. And so when we come back, we're going to talk more about D-Day. We'll hear from Ronald Reagan, his terrific point to Hoc speech. And, of course, we'll close out with some more facts and figures from the National World War II Museum. And, again, if you ever get a chance, go to New Orleans it's as good a museum as there is in this country. You go in and you swipe a dog tag. They give you a dog tag and you swipe it. And then you can follow different soldiers, airmen, through the war. You can follow different battles through panels that are touch screen. The videos are remarkable. Footage, I'm a World War II buff, footage you could never see anywhere. The curators at this museum, the best in the world. Again, the National World War II Museum started by Stephen Ambrose completed by some of the wealthier patrons in this country and I think the second or third most visited museum in America here on D-Day up next President Reagan at Pointe Hoc this is Our American Stories Our American Stories, our special D-Day celebration. And we've heard from General Dwight D. Eisenhower and also Stephen Ambrose, as fine a writer as there is on the subject of D-Day. And we just heard President Roosevelt's prayer to America on the day of the invasion. And again, we've got to remember what American life was like then. There were no other means of communication in mass. But the radio and the American people were gathered around the radio, huddled around the radio, worried about their boys, their kids going off to fight this menace. And by the way, remember what McCullough, David McCullough said, we don't know what happens. Nothing had to happen the way it happened. No one knew it was going to happen when they went over there. Nobody knew, except that it was going to be really bad. They knew that. And let's pivot 40 years ahead on that same beach, President Ronald Reagan remembered and honored those who gave their lives. This, one of his great speeches, the point to Hoc speech. Here he begins recounting that day and the bravery that was present.
4: We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, Much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point On the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June 1944, 225 Rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion. To climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades, and the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, Another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs,
0: they began to seize back the continent of Europe. He brings our attention to the memorial and the men from the Allied armies that fought fearlessly.
4: 225 came here. After 2 days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. these are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. Gentlemen, I look at you and I think of the words of Stephen Spender's poem. You are men who in your, quote, lives fought for life and left the vivid air signed with your honor. I think I know what you may be thinking right now. Thinking we were just part of a bigger effort. Everyone was brave that day. Well, everyone was. Do you remember the story of Bill Millen of the 51st Highlanders? Forty years ago today, British troops were pinned down near a bridge waiting desperately for help. Suddenly they heard the sound of bagpipes. And some thought they were dreaming. Well, they weren't. They looked up and saw Bill Millen with his bagpipes leading the reinforcements and ignoring the smack of the bullets into the ground around him. Lord Lovett was with him, Lord Lovett of Scotland, who calmly announced when he got to the bridge, sorry, I'm a few minutes late, as if he'd been delayed by a traffic jam, when in truth he'd just come from the bloody fighting on Sword Beach, which he and his men had just taken. There was the impossible valor of the Poles who threw themselves between the enemy and the rest of Europe as the invasion took hold, and the unsurpassed courage of the Canadians who had already seen the horrors of war on this coast. They knew what awaited them there, but they would not be deterred. And once they hit Juno Beach, they never looked back. All of these men were part of a roll call of honor, with names that spoke of a pride as bright as the colors they bore the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, Poland's 24th Lancers, the Royal Scots Fusiliers, the Screaming Eagles, the Yeomen of England's Armored Divisions, the Forces of Free France, the Coast Guard's Matchbox Fleet, and you, the American Rangers.
0: Reagan then asked these men, these hallowed graves, what inspired them all to risk it all?
4: Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? Well, what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer, and so you and those others did not doubt your cause, and you were right not to doubt. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for, And democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man.
0: Those who fought also knew that they had the support of those that they were fighting for back home.
4: All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you. The Americans who fought here that morning... New word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know in fact, that in Georgia they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas, they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia, they were ringing the Liberty Bell. Something else helped the men of D Day the rock-hard belief that Providence would have a great hand in the events that would unfold here, that God was an ally in this great cause. And so the night before the invasion, when Colonel Wolverton asked his parachute troops to kneel with him in prayer, he told them, do not bow your heads, but look up so you can see God and ask his blessing in what we are about to do. Also that night, General Matthew Ridgway, on his cot, listening in the darkness for the promise God made to Joshua, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. These are the things that impelled them. These are the things that shaped the unity of the Allies. When the war was over, there were lives to be rebuilt and governments to be returned to the people. There were nations to be reborn. Above all, There was a new peace to be assured. These were huge and daunting tasks. But the Allies summoned strength from the faith, belief, loyalty, and love of those who fell here. They rebuilt a new Europe together. There was first a great reconciliation among those who had been enemies, all of whom had suffered so greatly. The United States did its part creating the Marshall Plan to help rebuild our allies and our former enemies. The Marshall Plan led to the Atlantic Alliance, a great alliance that serves to this day as our shield for freedom, for prosperity, and for peace.
0: And there you have it, one of the great speeches delivered on foreign soil by President Reagan. And when we come back for the hour, one life, the life of Major Dick Winters. And if you haven't seen Band of Brothers, you should. He is the man who led the Band of Brothers. And my goodness, what they saw, what they got through, and what they went through. From D-Day, through the Battle of the Bulge, straight through to Eagle's Nest, and stumbling upon some concentration camps along the way. One of the great stories of heroism and loss, of hope and faith, and of courage ever recorded. The life of Dick Winters celebrating D-Day here on Our American Stories. His story coming up This is Our American Stories, and for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of Dick Winters and celebrating D-Day, and just a few facts again, just so you understand just the sheer massive nature of this enterprise. 5,000 ship and landing craft, 50,000 vehicles, 11,000 planes, a literal air and sea armada with land vehicles ready to go unimaginable and this has so much to do with the capacity of America our industry and our innovation and our spirit no other nation in the world could have managed something like this England was holding out waiting for us to come and save not only them but the western world and we're focusing now on this one story because in the end It's one great series that I would recommend that everybody buy on Amazon. One great series spawned from one great book by Stephen Ambrose. And that series is Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers was based on a Stephen Ambrose book of the same name, chronicling the men of E-Company 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. The unit was known as Easy Company, but there was nothing easy about their mission. That brave band of warriors jumped out of planes and parachuted right into some of the fiercest combat of World War II. They started behind enemy lines near the beaches of France, fought their way through Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands, the Battle of the Bulge, and all the way to Eagle's Nest, Hitler's plush retreat tucked in the Alps above Berchtesgaden. The tour of duty was so tough that, as one Easy Company soldier would later write about his fellow soldiers in his unit, Quote, the Purple Heart was not a decoration, but a badge of office. Born in Efreda, Pennsylvania, Winters moved to Lancaster when he was eight years old. And like so many small-town American boys, he was raised on small-town values, one of which was service to country. Indeed, his family connection to the military went all the way back to Timothy Winters, a British immigrant who served in the Revolutionary War and saw action at the Battle of Yorktown. Winters graduated from Lancaster Boys High in 1937 and attended nearby Franklin and Marshall, where he was a member of a fraternity and played football and basketball. But Winters had to give up one of his passions, wrestling, because he was too busy working at part-time jobs to help pay his tuition bill. He managed to graduate, though, with the highest academic standing in 1941. When the war broke out in Europe, Winters did what young men across this country did at the time. He enlisted in the Army. He was selected to attend Officer Candidate School, earned his commission in the summer of 1942, and then volunteered to join a newly formed paratrooper unit. Why such hazardous duty? Well, he was asked, and he told a reporter for American History Magazine, I applied for the Airborne because it was a new thing that looked like a challenge. I always enjoyed sports and physical activity, he said, and there was a certain appeal to being with the best. Nearly 500 officers volunteered to join that elite group of warriors. Only 148 made the cut. And for the hour, we're going to talk to two people who know a lot about Major Dick Winters. And one of them, we're pulling audio from the past. It's Major Dick Winters himself. And a little bit later, Colonel Cole Kingseed. And he was a former West Point military historian. And he just happened to co-author... Dick Winters' memoir, Beyond the Band of Brothers. I wanted to start with a clip from some of the post-production that HBO did with both Dick Winters and some of his men. The first voice you're going to hear is Dick Winters. The other is some of his colleagues. And this cuts to what, in the end, we're going to be talking all about for the next hour. And it's the leadership characteristics the character of Dick Winters and why men followed him and why we loved him.
5: If you're a leader, you lead the way, not just uh, on the easy ones. You take the tough ones, too. A good leader has to understand the people that are under him, understand their, their needs, their their desires or how they think a little bit seemed like he always made the right decisions along the way he was a real soldier like some of some of the officers uh i don't think i would follow them in a the water but uh he was he was one of the best
3: he went right in there and he didn't uh he never thought photo? not being first or sending somebody in his place.
0: I don't know how he survived, but he did. But he did. And by the way, Winters said, you got to take the tough ones. And boy, did he take the tough ones. None tougher than his first assignment on D-Day, according to Cole Kingseed. Quote, when he landed, Winters assembled his command and it was a widespread drop. But Winters was able, by D-Day morning, to gather 12 men, and he was ordered to destroy a German artillery battery that was firing on Utah Beach, one of the two American beaches, Kingseed told the BBC days after Winters' death. It was a 50-man German battery, he said, and Winters had 12 men. And by fire and maneuver, by leading his men from the front, he was able to knock out each of those guns on Utah Beach. And what a difference that made, King Seed explained. By silencing those guns, the American army suffered 192 dead on Utah Beach, in sharp contrast to Omaha Beach, where Americans suffered over 2,500 casualties. In their assault on that position, Major Winters noticed a wounded German soldier crawling toward a machine gun. I drilled him clear through the head, Winters told Stephen Ambrose. When we come back, we're going to hear... From Major Dick Winters himself, some old interviews and clips we pulled together, and after that, Colonel Cole Kingseed, former West Point historian who wrote, along with Major Dick Winters, Beyond Band of Brothers, the memoir of Dick Winters, and a book every family should own. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and we return to our special D-Day celebration and no better way to celebrate that than to celebrate the life of Major Dick Winters. And by the way, President John F. Kennedy once said, a nation reveals itself not only by the men it produces, but also by the men it honors, the men it remembers. Here in this clip, Major Dick Winters talks about the mentality he needed to survive and ultimately succeed in this war.
5: You have to make up your mind that you're going to be adjusted here uh, once the war's. Pearl Harbor. You make up your mind you're in now for the duration baby. You're not just in for a year for an obligation. So uh, you're here to get a job done and you have to adjust yourself mentally. And I like to stress that point uh, whether you're a paratrooper or or what job you are, if you join the paratroopers, you have to adjust mentally to the fact that you're going to jump out of an airplane behind the enemy lines. And uh, to do that, you must be in shape physically.
0: And here is Winters on why being in good physical shape is a necessity for a leader.
5: Unless... You're in good physical shape. Forget being a leader; it's not going to work out. You have to be in good physical shape to be a leader, and uh, it's so true. And that opinion was only after he had interviewed. I guess you could say thousands of uh, servicemen because he had a he had dedicated his life to interviewing and getting the memories of all the veterans.
0: Nearly 500 officers, as we had told you before, tried to join that unit. And again, only 148 made the cut that paratrooper unit. He was a part of Winters recalled the stark condition at camp tombs, Georgia, where he did some of his training quote, there were no windows in any of the buildings. And the only place with electricity was latrine he recalled. It was rough, but you were expecting it to be rough if you were going to be in the parachute troops. And what were they looking for at Camp Tombs, he was asked. We looked for the ones who looked like they could take it, Winters explained. Quote, When the going got tough, could they stick with it? We also looked for the men who accepted discipline. They were also looking for something else, explained Winters. Another thing we looked for, Winters said, is if the individual was accepted by the other men. The men did a lot of work for the officers by simply sizing one another up. If someone couldn't be accepted by his fellow soldiers, he was gone right away. The men who were told to leave didn't get to vote or make an appeal on this matter. This was not a popularity contest. Here's Winters on the bond of fellow soldiers in war.
5: You're working with these men in this unit and uh, you're sharing, you're sharing the hardships. And you're sharing the fact that of a job that you have to do. Uh, the This bond that you, uh, that grows with the people that you're working with is uh, a closeness uh somebody that isn't a part of it. And that would be the folks back home cannot understand or appreciate to sort of share that with the folks back home. uh, They don't understand it because they haven't been through it. To illustrate that point, uh, I can pass along this thought. Uh, It was obvious as the war was over, and we had a lot of uh, men marrying English girls, French girls, and so forth. And I can understand what, what was happening. The soldiers realized that when they came back home, that if uh, the girls that they would meet back home would not appreciate, would not understand what he had been through. And there was a bond, just the fact that the, the girls were uh, from England and through the bombings and the uh, and the hardships of uh, rationing and so forth, uh, the folks back home had, not underst- had never, never been subjected to rationing and the hardships. And that's why many married uh, girls from countries that we had conquered.
0: And that's what Band of Brothers was really all about in the end, getting us to understand what that conflict was like, because it didn't touch us here at home. And it was all about the camaraderie these men had. I don't think any movie ever got it like Band of Brothers did. They had the time to do it. By the way, the movie and his life in Europe had great ups and great downs. Here's Winters talking about one of the great high moments. And it was as they walked through the towns of Europe, experiencing liberation from German occupation.
5: It's a party like you have never seen before in your life. You've never seen people more happy in your life, to have the feeling that they again had freedom. Which illustrates, and I hope I can never forget it. I don't think we can appreciate it. In this country, we take great pride in the fact we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear and freedom from what? The four freedoms. And these people had that denied to them. And they had lived under occupation of Germany and not knowing they would ever be free again. Freedom is so important that we take it for granted. And it shouldn't be taken for granted.
0: And Winters had his hand on his heart, and you could tell. With this, he took the greatest pride. He and his men, free to people. And now to some of the low points. And the lowest of the low was when Winters and his men were trapped in those trenches in the dead of winter, surrounded by German troops. They couldn't raise their heads up out of those trenches because they would have been in the sight lines of German guns. So many of them froze to death. But never was the thought of surrendering an option to these men.
5: That's a subject that never came up we never talked about it we never thought about it how can you if you're going to be sit around pitying yourself and talking about it and thinking about it the first thing you're going to do is you're going to convince yourself that you should surrender that never happened we never talked about it never thought about it
0: interestingly enough the Ander Brothers chronicled the horrors of war and the camaraderie among men that war engenders, but the worst of Winter's War experiences did not involve combat. While on patrol, his men discovered a slave labor camp that was a part of Dachau in April of 1945. It was a ghastly scene, one he'd never forget. Your
5: know, first uh, when you see it, it just stops you. You've never seen anything like this, it's... A- Complete shock. It just stops every feeling of uh, emotion that you have. Uh, the horror of it is you could never imagine anything like this before. Uh, sure, you've been through the war and you've seen men killed and you've seen people how they suffered in. Uh, France and Holland and Belgium and so forth, occupied countries. You see now they've suffered with uh, uh, short rushings, and, uh, but you've never imagined anything like this.
0: He said this to a reporter, the memory of starved, dazed men who dropped their eyes and heads when we looked at them through the chain fence in the same manner that a beaten, mistreated dog would cringe leaves feelings that cannot be described and will not ever be forgotten. The impact of seeing those people behind that fence left me saying only to myself, now I know why I'm here. And the other tough part of this gig, of this service, was Major Dick Winters watching the casualties mount.
5: The feeling that leaves you with, how long will this go on? And, uh, well let's go on forever and you reach the point when you see people around you dropping basically every day Uh, I hope when it's my turn that it isn't too bad it's not a matter of if you know it's gonna be your turn sooner or later and you stick around long enough you just hope it won't be too bad
0: hope to live through it this is our american stories the life of major dick winters special d-day celebration here on our american stories This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating D-Day and celebrating the life, honoring the life of Major Dick Winters, the man who led Easy Company and who was the key and featured leader in the epic series, HBO series, produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks called Band of Brothers. And if you haven't seen it, my goodness, you must buy it on Amazon, sit the family down and watch it. It's quite a long spell, but in the age of binge-watching, there's nothing better to binge-watch than Band of Brothers. And now we want to turn to Colonel Cole Kingseed, who served in the U.S. Army for 30 years and was Chief of Military History at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Colonel Kingseed is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Beyond the Band of Brothers, The War Memoirs of Major Dick Winters. And we spoke to him just the other day in preparation for this hour-long celebration. And to start things off, talking about Winters, you had to ask, what was D-Day like?
6: It was a remarkable day, -Day. D-Day. Sometimes I would say, Lee, a single day's combat reveals more about the character of a nation than a generation of peace. Dick Winters' mission, uh, he was second in command of Easy Company, Was to destroy that four gun German artillery battery that was firing on Utah Beach. And that was probably the most successful amphibious landing on D Day. Uh, Dick Winters, a member of Easy Company, had only 12 members of Easy Company when he was given that mission. Normally, that would be a company sized mission of for about 150 paratroopers. So Dick had to scrape about um, uh, ad hoc force to knock that German artillery battery out of action.
0: And by the way, again, that that battery had around 50 men, according to Dick Winter's memory and some of the other men that survived. You know, we talked a lot about many of the aspects of leadership with Colonel Cole Kingseed. And one of the dimensions was the idea of loneliness, because when you watch Band of Brothers, Winters was always off by himself. He was close to the men, but he couldn't get too close. And before we throw to that Cole Kingseed clip, here's what Winters himself had to say to American history. He said, quote, You maintain close relationships with your men, but not friendship. You have mutual respect for one another, yet you have to hold yourself aloof to a degree, because if you are too friendly... It can work in a negative way when you need to discipline your men. In leading groups effectively, you have to rise above camaraderie. So let's talk to King Seed about that question. Was he a lonely man?
6: Dick Hoyes would say, I count my close friends on one hand. I don't want anyone to know me. And he talked about the command in war. He said it is a very lonely job um, And and it's really because of that, because the the leader has to make the very difficult decisions on which uh, soldiers' lives depend. And it's hard to make those decisions if you get too close to the soldiers themselves.
0: And by the way, actor Damian Lewis did such a beautiful job capturing that loneliness. He didn't wear it on his sleeve. He never whimpered or whined about it. It's just there he was. You knew it. You could feel it. And it hurt him. We asked Colonel Kingseed, what made Winters a success?
6: I asked him once, I said, Why do you, to what do you attribute your success? He goes, well, I don't like to talk about myself, but I think that probably the reason that I was so successful was that I never forgot the place I came from. And Dick Winters was not always an officer. He enlisted in the Army, and so in one of his letters home to a platonic friend, he said, you know, I'm, uh, he called himself a half-breed. An officer, yes, but an enlisted soldier at heart. That was the essence of Dick Winters as a leader.
0: Indeed, he started as a private. How did Winters balance being a leader and being one of the guys?
6: I always call it being able, the ability to fly at different altitudes you can be at the very tactical level with the soldiers at one time, but then you have to be more at a strategic level. You have to be able and the willingness to make the hard decisions on which the organization depends, and that's what uh, that's what you end up seeing with Dick. So he could kind of let the soldiers uh, steam, uh, let off steam, but he always had to make the quick decisions to ensure that they survived.
0: What was Winter's style of leadership?
6: His style of leadership was leadership by example. I I often ask Dick about um, leadership because he has obviously acknowledged uh, that from the Soldiers of Easy Company, it was Dick Winter's company. This is what Dick said. He said, leadership is very difficult to define. Uh, He always went, he echoed uh, Dwight David Eisenhower when he said, the one quality that can be developed by studious reflection and practice is the leadership of men. And that's really the essence of uh, Dick Winters. Um, It's it's a lonely job, as we uh, talked about in the uh, earlier uh, uh, segment. But, uh, you know, how do you know if you survive? Or how do you serve, uh, how are you um, know if you've been a successful leader? And Dick would always say, "All you have to do is to take a look at the eyes of the soldiers. Then that well, that's your satisfaction. It has nothing to do with the medals in the chest or anything else. To make sure that uh, that you have done your job and you were able to get your soldiers back home." the most soldiers possible.
0: And again, we're talking to Colonel Kingseed, who is the military historian at West Point and co-author of Beyond the Band of Brothers, the memoir he co-wrote with Major Dick Winters. And we asked him why Winters was so willing to fight down in the trenches with his men.
6: That was at the level that he uh, operated and kind of the tactical level. Here's the thing that about Dick. He was able to associate himself with In this case, Easy Company. Dick always said this, Easy Company made me. It brought out the very best of me. As I reflect upon my life after the war, I can honestly say that it has been a lifetime search for the men like those I knew in Easy Company in World War II.
0: And then we asked him about mistakes and how you lead without being willing to admit them?
6: I asked Dick Winters about it. and said, listen, every time with Am- I was Stephen Ambrose, who wrote Band of Brothers, and Tom Hanks and Spielberg with the, uh, with the miniseries, I said, you certainly made a, a number of mistakes. He said, yes, I did. And, uh, he, and I said, give me, give me an example. He said, normally when, we, when you attack, you have like two platoons. A platoon would be roughly about 30 soldiers. Two platoons forward, in one fact and I fell into a habit he said that I always kept first platoon on the left and the second platoon on the right and the third platoon was always in the rear as a result of that by 50 years after the war there were far more survivors of platoon uh, the third platoon than there were on those who were forward he said, "I should have rotated uh, those platoons. It wasn't a conscious thought, but I, I failed to rotate the units as a result of that." He was very willing to admit that. That has a lot to do about humility.
0: You bet. And humility was the watchword, the key word to understanding the character of Richard Winters. And when we come back, more from Colonel Kingseed and from Major Dick Winters himself. This is our American Stories. The story of Major Dick Winters. American Stories and we return to the story of Major Dick Winters and my goodness what a life what a humble life too and we're talking to the man who wrote with Colonel and we're talking to the man who wrote best about Major Dick Winters co-wrote Major Dick Winters autobiography beyond the band of brothers and we asked Colonel Kingseed and again, he's the military, was the military historian at West Point. We asked Lieutenant Colonel Cole Kingseed, how did the movie and the book Band of Brothers affect Major Dick Winters?
6: It did not affect Dick Winters at all. Again, uh, the fame meant nothing to Dick. What he took great pride in, that in the Band of Brothers segment, as well as the movie, it, they often highlighted an individual soldier from Easy Company, and that's where he took great pride in. And I gave the, a lot of these other uh, soldiers who uh, became famous as a result of that. Dick uh, Dick left the war with uh, you know more medals, more fame than uh, than anybody probably uh, should have achieved. But the essence of Dick Winters was humility. Humility uh, really has got to be the the true measure of a man or a woman who has achieved fame based on the sacrifice of their fellow men and women.
0: In one of Winter's very last interviews, public interviews, and you can find it up on YouTube, he was asked about what it was like adjusting to civilian life, and, well... This holds true to soldiers today, just as it did back then.
5: They look you straight in the eye. Do you think this guy you're looking at today has adjusted to this day? It's a slow process. And as we shared earlier here, you relive this with flashbacks. So this is part of the adjustment you're still making today. Uh, Initially, they're very tough. Uh... I can recall a time of coming home and I just wanted to go take walks by myself uh, to get away from the family, to get away by yourself, basically. And I'm walking down this street in Lancaster and I'm going by a, a home that had a, a fence, pale fence there and there was a kid coming the other way. And this kid had a stick with him and he just took the stick and went, brrr, down along the fence. I picked myself up out of the gutter to a thought. It's just a natural reaction from what you've been going through all these years. When you have a machine gun fire, you hit the ditch, you don't care who you are. You don't think, you're reacting. Uh, but you recover from that slowly and it's up to you mentally to again not only get ready to go in combat now you have to adjust your yourself mentally to get back into civilian life and be able to adjust to civilian life it's not easy
0: no and that was chronicled an american sniper and so that never changes coming back from seeing the things men in battle see and then having to deal with civilian life. Here, Winters describes the difficulty in talking to civilians about what goes on in war.
5: To talk to a civilian or somebody who's never been overseas, again, you have to withdraw yourself because he won't know what you're talking about. And uh, you do not want to come across the... Uh, i leave the impression that you were bragging. No, you're not bragging. You're just sharing a memory. And that's hard to do. So, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And as you can see, it's even difficult right here today.
0: Yeah, and this is Major Dick Winters in his early 90s. And still you can hear him almost tearing up. Winters then gave this advice for young people.
5: The important thing to keep in mind for any young student, and I enjoy talking to high school group children, and we get a lot of letters, as I've shared with you, from students all ages, basically. And basically, I have one message to all. They're all the same hang tough, and I mean by saying hanging tough, do your best every day, whether it's in school or at your job or wherever you are. Do your best every day, and you can't ask, for you don't have to know all the answers, no way. Don't expect that of yourself. Just do your best, satisfy yourself, so at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror after you brush brushed your teeth and say honestly to yourself, today I did my best. And if you do that, you're being honest and everything is going to be okay.
0: Winters wasn't always sure he'd live through the war. He told writer Stephen Ambrose that he knelt down and prayed after D-Day, quote, if somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace, Winters were cold. After the war, he found that quiet piece of land. He bought a farm outside Hershey, Pennsylvania, where he spent the rest of his life with his bride, Ethel. But peace, that eluded him. And then he decided, late in his life, to tell his own story. And when he submitted the final revisions of his memoir to his co-author, Cole Kingseed, he had good news to report and we talked to Cole Kingseed about that.
6: He finally did. Uh, And you're absolutely right about the peace and quiet. Uh, It's very easy to uh, uh, achieve quiet. But peace has to come from within. Dick Winter's last 60 years of his life was a search for that inner peace. And he finally found it. Finally found it. In 2005 when we submitted the manuscript of his war memoirs to the publisher. We had to uh, submit it on April 1st uh, 2005. I, I drove back to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I said, Dick, the uh, manuscript has uh, sent to the publication. He says, do you need anything else from me? I said, absolutely not. Lee, what he ended up doing, he was sitting in a chair. He took his glasses off. He put his uh, back to in the chair, closed his eyes, and he said, it's over. It's over. And that's the last time he ever spoke about World War II. He wanted that story out so he could end that chapter of his life that began on D-Day.
0: Winters is buried next to his parents in the family plot in the town where he was born. His grave is marked only Richard D. Winters, WW2, 101st Airborne. That's it. He did not include the many awards he won during World War II, among them the nation's second-highest decoration for valor, the Distinguished Service Cross for Heroism on D-Day. But that was just like Dick Winters. Humble in birth, humble in death. In the final scene, a band of brothers, and I defy anyone to not cry through it, the real-life Dick Winters recalls a story that a friend of his told him about a conversation he had had with his grandson. And we're going to play that clip from Band of Brothers right now. Here's Dick Winters.
5: Do you remember the letter that Mike Raney wrote me? You do? Do you remember how I ended it? I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in a war?" Grandpa said no. But I served in a company of heroes.
0: And that scene there was the real Major Dick Winters. And there isn't a dry eye in any house in America watching that final scene. And what was so beautiful about Band of Brothers is how they faded in and out of the characters played by the Hollywood actors. And always it would end and then begin again with the actual real, real-life World War II veterans who walked that walk, that amazing walk. And my goodness, when you're watching Band of Brothers, you're on the ground with these guys. You're in the hedgerows with them. You're in the latrine with them. You're everywhere with them, all the way to the end at Garden and the Eagle's Nest. And there you have it, a special, special D-Day celebration honoring the great Dick Winters who died not too long ago. Didn't get the honoring that he deserved, didn't get the celebrations. My goodness, if Cher died, we'd never hear the end of it. But Major Dick Winters gets an obit on the back of a lot of major newspapers. But not here on Our American Stories. His life will be remembered several times a year. We'll play this full piece. His story here on Our American Stories.